Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and I'm the author of All Together Now, A Zombie Story. That's a young adult novel. It's actually technically by Robert Kent, my super secret pen name. And it is available now as an audiobook and a paperback and an ebook. You can get it in any format that you like. Uh, Robert Kent has several other horror novels available, both young adult and for adults. Check those out. If you want some true middle grade, Rob Kent's got Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. I heard it's free to download uh, if you act now. Uh, so head to middlegradeninja.com. You can get more information about all of that. Uh, you can get interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, all the best people, the whole back catalog of the show, uh, and possibly even some writing advice that will change your life and make better your destiny. Who knows what could happen? Uh, my guest this evening couldn't be more excited. Uh, Jasmine Warka, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am fantastic. Um, esteemed audience knows that we record this episode, these episodes ahead of time, uh, and then they hit when it's available. So I'm just going to go ahead and spoil that we are talking uh, May 10th. I'm so excited because we are launch eve for your newest book. We are. We are pub date eve. Yes. I'm not sure if that is official holiday, but I always think of it in my house as one. Um, yeah. Right the night before. What is that? I mean, yeah, book birthday Eve. That that's that sounds legit. I think, I'm, I'm, I think it should be legit. Yeah. <laughs> you've got a huge party. You've got uh, previous guest, Dr. Uh, Padma Vikatraman, uh, who is going to be are you gonna be doing like a informal chat? What's gonna be happening at the lunch party? Yeah, so I think it's just gonna be a chat. She is generous enough that she uh, is donating her time to helping uh, to celebrate my new book. And so she read it early and we're just gonna be uh, kind of in conversation. I think she has some questions she's gonna ask me and then uh, we're going to talk. I think we're going to talk a lot about one of the things that I think uh, connects uh, Padma's and my work is that we both uh, tackle tougher subjects, um, but do so in a way that I think leads with heart and hope. And so I hope that we'll talk a lot about that because I'm a big fan of uh, that part of Padma's work. Uh, we can talk about anything you want. My <laughs> <laughs> heart and hope. We can, uh, we can talk about it all. Um, I should mention the book, of course, is called The Shape of Thunder, uh, which esteemed audience can be adding to their cart right now uh, while we're speaking. If you if you happen to be on your way to the independent bookstore that you shop at every week, regularly esteemed audience, God bless you. While you're there, pick up a copy of The Shape of Thunder. Uh, so I don't... Uh, I don't summarize other people's biographies and I don't summarize other people's books. And that's my secret plan for making sure I maintain friends in the industry. Uh, so if you would give a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Yeah. So the, the biography is what we're looking for. Just like kind of. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, well, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I grew up as the daughter of I'm an Arab Muslim immigrant and a white super Midwestern mom. Um, grew up in a small town in the Cincinnati, Ohio area, and then went away uh, to college in the Chicago area. And like all the daughters of immigrants, the plan was for me to be a doctor, uh, but I'd wanted my whole life to be a writer. And somewhere along the way, I lost the doctor part of it and I really went for the writer part of it. And then my first job uh, out of college was teaching sixth grade science um, in Houston, Texas, of all places. Um, but it was 
during that experience that it really solidified, I think, my desire to write, particularly for uh, this audience of middle schoolers. Um, and I have published, well, three books, but it'll be four books tomorrow. Uh, my first two books, actually, I can grab them. Um, where are they? My children are always moving things around. That is not true. I don't. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, there we go. I My first two books were young adult books. So the first book is My Heart and Other Black Holes. Uh, the second book, Here We Are Now. Um, the third book, which is my first middle grade novel, my debut middle grade novel, is Other Words for Home. And the one that comes out tomorrow, as we've talked about, is The Sheep of Thunder. And this is a finished copy, which is really exciting. I think this is the first event, or I don't know if this counts as an event, the first thing that I'm doing that uh, I have a finished copy to hold up for. So I think that that's the kind of the short biography of me. I am a super fan of ice cream and any kind of animal and the mom to two um, wonderful little girls who ensure that our house is always mess, uh, but I wouldn't have it any other way. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Black raspberry chip ice cream from Grader's Ice Cream, which is an ice cream company based in Cincinnati, my hometown, uh, with the follow-up flavor uh, being Ben & Jerry's Chunky Monkey. Fair enough. So lots to uh, break down on the writer's journey. And then I got four books to talk about. We, we, we have plenty behind us, or plenty ahead of us. And this is absolutely an event. Uh, it's extremely exciting. I'm uh, thrilled that you uh, agreed to share this launch uh, book birthday eve <laughs> with me. Um, but OK, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, as I was reading your bio earlier, uh, you start off and you're thinking, maybe I'll become a doctor, you know, just to to maybe help out with this writing thing on the side, uh, do a little bit of doctoring, and then you end up uh, an art history major. So yeah. that's a change. And then you end up teaching sixth grade science. So how how does that work? Yeah, so I think, you know, I put a lot of pressure to be a doctor when I was a young person. And I don't know if any of our listeners who are listening to this are also fellow uh children of immigrants, but I think that's kind of a classic trope of immigrant children from my friends that I know that all of us were supposed to be doctors. And I think the reason behind that is a lot of our parents, you know, crossed an ocean because uh, they wanted their kids to have what they considered to be like a better and more secure life here in America. And the kind of the shining pinnacle of that was this idea of, of doctor. And um, so I felt a lot of pressure to become a doctor um, and like live up to that to kind of be like my dad's American dream in that way. Uh, but I didn't have a particular affinity for science or medicine, which I think is maybe a disqualifier for becoming a doctor. Um, but I, when I got to college, I quickly figured out that I could be a liberal arts major that had pre-med if you did your pre-med requirements. You, you didn't have to major in biology to become a doctor, even though oftentimes I think that's what people do because it makes like course credits easier. So I started off by saying to my parents, okay, like I know you're gonna freak out that I'm studying history and art history, but don't worry, like I'm gonna do these pre-med uh, requirements, which I did not. Uh, complete all of them. You're, you're preparing the parents who are listening for when when their daughter tries this. Yeah, morning. yeah. Just, They're going to see it coming. See the track. <laughs> um, but I think because I had done um, a couple of those requirements and classes, 
um, when I got into this alternative teacher certification program after college, I got tagged into science uh, because I think a lot of the people who come into the program are all fellow art history majors. And so they are looking for like anyone with any kind of like science uh, background. And then you have to take this test. I mean, that's like really scary. And we won't go into that about the American education system that they let you enter a classroom just because you pass, you know, one uh, science test you're able to get this, like, it's not an official certification. I was an official teacher, but I was allowed to be in the classroom while I worked towards getting my official certification. Um, but it's not funny, you know, I was, I've been talking about this a lot recently that I feel like I spent so much of my childhood saying, I can't be a doctor because science is not my favorite thing. Like reading is my favorite thing. Writing and reading are my favorite things. And now so many of my books have lots of science in them. And I find myself as an adult really curious about science and really um, falling into this line of thinking that, you know, science is the magic of our world. You know, I think it's easy to, I find myself, you know, wishing you know, that magic was real. And then I think about the fact I'm talking to you right now through a screen. I see your face and you're a moving picture and you're live and we fly through the air in, you know, planes and our scientists have come up with a vaccine for this disease so quickly and all these things that science really is magic. And I think that my curiosity and passion for science is bit on earth and getting to come at it from a storyteller perspective. So I find that personally very funny just because I spent so much of my childhood um, thinking that I wasn't interested in science when really I think what it was that I was a storyteller, uh, not necessarily cut out to be a doctor, uh, but it didn't really have a lot to do with liking or disliking science. That was just a story I kind of, I guess, told to myself. I uh, often remark that my smartphone has lots of features that Harry Potter's wand does not. Yeah. <laughs> there are plenty of fantastic things that uh, just I just didn't exist when Rowling uh, did draft one. <laughs> she probably would have got him uh, into the. Uh, I mean, the wand should should definitely be saving to the cloud. You know, it's, it's, and, it, and it should definitely have a, a filter option for people. I think, like, yeah, there's a lot of things. That, <laughs> Um, so, okay, do you think maybe a part of that, I'm just curious, um, was that when you were younger, science would have been uh, in service of a dream and a future you didn't want, whereas now the science is in the future of story, or, or is, um, uh, you're using it for storytelling, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that I'm chasing, like, things that I'm curious about and things that I'm passionate about. I'm sure you probably find the same thing in your own writing. A lot of my writing is born out of intrigue and interest in, in certain topics or things. I mean, for The Sheep of Thunder, I was thinking a lot about time travel as an actual concept at like a physics level. And that's something I'm just really fascinated by about how time lots of science bears out as sort of a human illusion, right? At least our experience of time. Um, but the fact that like all of this science and the fact I enjoy reading science articles now still makes me laugh because I remember like 
14 year old Jasmine having so much angst feeling like, Oh, I can't be a doctor cause I don't like science. And, um, you know, I guess the universe works in mysterious ways of where you find, uh, what, what you're interested in. I found that to certainly be true of history. When I was a younger person, I was extremely dismissive. Ah, history is so boring. Yeah, everybody was dumb until now. <laughs> Why couldn't they figure out all the stuff we've got figured out? Uh, and now, of course, it's it's one, I rarely realize that uh, we're not quite as advanced as I thought we were. Uh, and two, um, it's absolutely fascinating, the story of, of how we got here. And there's all sorts of storytelling you can do around it. So I, I'm with you 100%. I will dive into history all day long. And it's not just to learn to get a grade on a test that I don't care about. It's because I will feel better. I will be enriched and uh, um, and made better by this knowledge. So, okay, um, you uh, somehow get from teaching sixth grade science to becoming a paralegal. Uh, where in there do you start writing? Yeah, so I started writing while I was... So I actually started writing or taking my writing seriously and really writing when I was teaching in uh, Houston, Texas, because my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, uh, said to me one day I was complaining about um, my job and I loved, loved my students. I actually really loved being a teacher, but I felt very underqualified for the position that I was in. Um, it was really, really tired. I didn't feel like I had adequate because I mean, of course, I hadn't gone through I hadn't gone to school to become a teacher. And, you know, I didn't and I hadn't gone to school to teach this specific curriculum um, of science. And I have so much respect now for teachers. That's what I always tell the first thing I tell them on school visits, because that is the most difficult job I ever had. And I was complaining about how difficult this job was. And my boyfriend, now my husband, said, well, you always say that you're a writer, but I've never seen you write anything. At the time, that made me so, so mad. Uh, but it turns out that anger can be a really good uh, jumping off point to start. And so that night, I sat down, I started writing, and I'm sure you know, kind of the moment, there's a moment you start, and once you start, it kind of goes from there. And so I just really started trying to write a book, and... I would wake up really early in the morning um, and drive to my school way before anyone else got there and would write in my classroom when it was really quiet. And so I think even now when I'm lucky enough to be a full-time writer, I'm still a morning writer. And I think it's because of that habit of that's when I used to squeeze in. My writing time was early morning. I'd always wake up before work. And then, um, I applied and I got into a low residency MFA program at Lesley University. And in while I was in this program, the program was well suited because I didn't have to leave my job um, as a teacher because you only go for a handful of days throughout the year to actual residency and the rest of the time you're working on your own work um, at home. And that was really great for me, again, in learning how to carve out time for my writing within the confines of my regular life. I think so many people who, um, I've had friends who have gotten to do like traditional MFA programs, which are so wonderful. And I'm like deeply jealous of people who had just two years to live in a writing community. But I think one of the like roundabout advantages is the low residency model for me in particular was I learned how to have to make space for my writing 
within the, the, like, I guess the normal routine of my life with my job. Um, and while I was in the program, uh, my, uh, boyfriend who is now in this story, become my fiance, got a different job, um, in Austin. And so we moved, I left my teaching job and we moved to Austin and once I was in Austin, I got the job as the world's worst paralegal, but I was a paralegal. <laughs> uh, and then, um, so you start writing, you're writing in the morning, you're, you're in the office. I'm assuming when you're in the classroom, you've got the lights off so another teacher doesn't walk by, see you and like, oh, wonderful. I can go talk to Jasmine real fast uh, before the students get here and suck up all her writing time. <laughs> I, I don't know if you if, if you had that problem. I had that problem uh, with day jobs where I tried to go early and, and write. And people were like, oh, wonderful! You're at work early now. We can talk about work stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. No, it is. I mean, once I was a paralegal, I would write at home before going in to to work early for that reason. I think something about having like your own classroom maybe made that boundary easier. And also, like, I would get there so so early, like before the sun rose early to this classroom because it was so the school that I taught it was really far away from where I lived in Houston and so traffic was really bad that I had to leave really early anyways and school started so early um that basically the school started to come alive I think around the same time a lot of the other teachers got there because we did um like a breakfast program at my school so I my homeroom kids I started like breakfast through the school to them every morning. And that was kind of like the routine is that's when I knew it was time to like shut down for the day was when the uh, cafeteria staff uh, would come by with the breakfast uh, for my homework. Could you sneak in like, I don't know, on uh, teacher prep periods or uh, special extra if the kids yeah, go to like, I always wanted to but you know I felt like I said I felt so overwhelmed with being a teacher I think sometimes what people don't understand about teaching is there's so much work outside of the classroom so you're constantly planning your lessons but then there's also all the grading and all the submitting of the grades and all everything and so I was always feeling like I needed my prep to teach myself the lesson that I needed to teach the kids the next day. Cause like I said, I, I felt very unqualified for the uh, position that I held while I was a teacher. And so, um, but I do, I do have memories of, I got my first smartphone um, while I was a teacher, a couple months into teaching. And I had like sent my first, like, Maybe this is the wrong time. I remember getting my smartphone and somewhere in there got over eager and sent out like a first type of like query letter. And I remember always like checking my phone, hoping like I was going to hear some kind of news that was going to change my life, which certainly did not happen while I was teaching. But I have memories of, of doing that during my prep period or having like these like fantasy, like in between the bell switches, looking at my phone and being like, oh, I'm going to get writing news. It's going to change my life. And not yet, you know, it, it took longer than that. But um, the, I have that memory of like sneaking in to look at things. Well, was my heart another black holes. Great, great title. Um, uh, was that the first book that you wrote or did you have to write a couple before you got to the point where you had something? 
Yeah, it was most certainly not the first book that I wrote. I wrote a lot of other books and I wrote a lot of half finished other books. Like a big part of my problem was I when I was first starting out and, and to this day is still a little bit of a problem is that I idea hop. And I think the thing about idea hopping is you never see that the new idea is also going to be really difficult when you get to the middle of it, right? But you always, or I did always hopped when I reached that 50 to 75 page part where you really got to do the work, you got to grind it out and you have to figure out like how you're going to keep the story going or, you know, what is going on, not just that kind of sparkly beginning that seems so fun. And so I did that a lot. And I was writing a lot of more like whimsical middle grade books. And my Heart of the Black Holes was a big departure in style for me, which has been interesting for my publishing journey because I think what your debut book is kind of sets the tone for what people expect that your body of work is going to be like in a lot of ways. Um, but it was one of my first like young adult books that I'd worked on. So, and I know that like line can be blurry sometimes, right? Like I think of my middle grade books, my other words for home and the sheep of thunder is being more like tween books. So that's like kind of like junior high, you know, like I think of them as like maybe fourth grade and up, fifth grade and up type middle grade, like middle grade's a big span, right? We could have listeners here who are first grade. Um, then that encompasses some middle grade books. But My Heart and the Buckles is pretty firmly a, a YA book, like a, a high school book. And uh, but all of my other books before that really had been middle grade uh, books. Uh, but it was, you know, um, I started writing the book in the last semester of my MFA program in January 2013. And it was a book that was born out of, you know, personal life experiences. So that book would not have been written and could not have been written without what was happening in my life happening. Um, but it was very different from anything that I had ever worked on, uh, which again, I think it just the way publishing, a publishing career can happen or take place is interesting in that way. And that, uh, yeah, it's not like I'd written a bunch of other darker YA books that hadn't worked and then came to my heart and black holes. It was very different uh, from anything I'd worked on before. So how, how long from the time you sit down and say, all right, every morning it's on, I'm doing this, to where, what's the first step? Do you get an agent? Do you get a, uh, what's, when does that, when that positive news comes through, what is the positive news? Yeah, so we're looking for, so I've been writing, like writing, trying to get, I guess, trying to get published. I mean, I don't know, like writing with the intention that I wanted to be published for three years before I started writing My Heart and Other Black Holes in January 2013. And then I wrote My Heart and Other Black Holes crazy fast. I have never written another book this fast and I never ever again will, I'm sure of it. But I finished this draft March 2013, revise it, query agents in May of 2013 and I signed with my agent in the first week of June of 2013 and she'd sold the book by I think the official date that the deal closed was August 2013. So it was a really fast kind of publishing fairy tale type moment for that particular book. But there had been these years before it of, you know, writing things and not finishing things and 
probably prematurely querying the projects that I did because I would be like make that new writer mistake of being really excited about something or really excited I finished and like querying like, oh maybe they'll see the potential in it and they'll help me edit it you know which is you know um I like your version of publishing I, I want to live in that world yes yes <laughs> exactly and so um it was also my first project though that I took the revision part of it very seriously before I approach agents. So if anyone's listening here who's a writer themselves trying to get published, that's always my one of my number one pieces of advice is to revise and revise and revise until you can't think of a single thing you would change about the book. And I think that was a big mistake I made as a young writer is that I'd always be like, it's good enough. Like it's a good idea. They'll see. And then, and then I won't make changes they don't want. I'll be able to change it the way they do want. You know, I like always had all these excuses. Um, but I think that comes from, we all have that, right? That like thirstiness to be published. And I definitely felt that. And I think the longer that I've been in this, the more I'm interested in making sure it's the story that I really want to tell as opposed to feeling like I just want to publish another book, um, which has been an interesting, I think, evolution maybe that happens once you have that moment of seeing, you know, your your book on a bookshelf, which was always the dream and is still astounding to me that it happened. It's really special every time. I mean, tomorrow I'm going to go and want to see the new book on the shelf. So of course it's still exciting and I want that. But I think that that itchiness of like over eagerness has, I've been able to calm that a little bit. And I think that that has served my writing better to be able to like sit with things a little bit longer and realize that it's not about like how fast you can do something, but more are you doing something the, the best uh, that you can do it. So what helped you get over that um, it's a common thing that to, to fall apart in the middle or just, you know, hit a, hit a spot where you don't know where you're going anymore? And when you get an idea, do you, does it come to you as a three-act structure, you know, the whole thing? Do you sit down and plot it all or is it all just as it comes to you? And all I, I definitely does not have a structure. I don't even think my, some of my published books have three-act structures, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that on this podcast. But, like, I never think in three-act structure. I don't really understand three-act structure, to be honest. That's not how my brain works. I think um, in terms of, like, satisfying feel for story, like, I want the story to feel like it. you – I think in terms of character growth. Like, I'm a character – based writer and so for me it's always my idea is start with a character who's asking something about the world about a problem they have and the book is built around that question and kind of by the end of the book I think the book usually leaves you with more questions as opposed to answering that question but somehow the character has grown and learned things along the way that have complicated um that question but I when my first book came out, I was lucky enough I got sent on book tour. Um, and one of the other writers who I was on tour with was, a, she wrote a fantasy, a high fantasy novel uh, that was wonderful. Like I read it in one night. I loved this book. Um, but I was listening to her on the panel and she was talking about like three act structure. I was also talking about all these different plot beats. And I had like a nervous breakdown to her at dinner. I was like, I don't know any of those things. Like, what is like, what is this? And she was very reassuring. It was like, I've read your book and you do know those things because I can break your book down that way. I think you just are thinking about 
story differently. And I think that that's the other thing that I had to learn is like, you are the writer that you are, um, as opposed to sometimes the writer you want to be. Like, I wish that I was more of a plotter. Um, and I wish that structure was easier for me to understand. It wasn't something that I had to like grope so much around in the dark to be able to find. Um, but I think that like she was, she said to me, which was really comforting that you learn these things through reading. Right. And I think that that is one thing I feel really confident in is that I read all the time and have always been a super voracious reader. And that's how I've learned about writing. So I don't plot my books and I don't, I couldn't hang with you in a conversation about structure, honestly, if we were asking about different points of it. So I definitely don't think really think about that a lot when I'm writing my book. So I'm sure my editor does and she helps to guide me. Um, my poor editor, she's like, why are you saying you don't think about structure, know about structure on a podcast? But I mean, it's true. I, I'm interested, I guess, in, in character and in character growth. And I guess that's a different way to think about plot, but um, I sort of think about all the other things that make it so you have to have a plot without so much thinking about that, if that makes sense. It does. I think I think you could absolutely keep up in a conversation about structure with me. Now, if Robert McKee were here, watch out. <laughs> That's a different conversation. Um, and I imagine there's probably somebody listening to us or watching us uh, who, who they are, are, are Jasmine Warga, and they're hearing the terms plot and structure. Like, oh, my gosh, no, I, I, I could never do that. And they're going to hear you and like, well, look, uh, she's a Newbery Honor winner. Uh, for, for God's sake, if, if, if she's not uh, bothered by um, not... Uh, embracing plot and structure first, but starting with character, maybe it's okay that I do as well. And I always make the joke that if I have two really successful writers back to back tell me that we do exactly this every time and it's always successful, I'm throwing out everything I know about writing and I'm doing that. But so far, so far it hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I think it is. Everyone's process is different. Every book is different because I, the further I get into this, I find myself wanting to write. I'm having ideas that are a little bit like meatier in plot. They're like larger than a lot of the more like interior character growth type stories I've told so far. And I'm sure if I decide to pursue one of those, I'm maybe going to need to beef up on some of the structure concepts and ideas and maybe plot it out before I write. You know, I think it's also knowing what kind of book you're trying to write. I think that it would be very difficult to write like an epic fantasy series without any thought to the plan. I mean, people maybe do it. I don't, I'm not an expert on that, but I would think like so far I've written standalone books. So there's like not the same degree of planning doesn't have to happen, I guess. Do you have a hunger for a long series? Not necessarily a series, but um, like more speculative things. And I think that's funny. It's really coming from being around my kids and remembering like how big my imagination was uh, when I was younger. And I also think the pandemic has done something to my brain. Like all of my ideas always were like straight realism, straight contemporary, always, always, always until this year. And suddenly, I can't come up with a realistic idea to save my life. All of the ideas that I'm coming up with 
are speculative or magical or in a different world than our world. And I think it's because in this year and last year, we all kind of want to be in a different world. Or I also think, you know, I write books about the contemporary experience, right? About what it means to be a young person living in America today. And I think that when I was faced um, with what was going on with this pandemic, I didn't quite know. I, I you, Everything shuffled, right? And so it's, it's difficult to write about the contemporary moment if you don't at all have any handle on it. And so I think maybe that's what's turning me towards that. But I also, like I said, I think it's my kids who are very, very imaginative, very believe in magic and see it everywhere and see portals everywhere and see, you know, everything. I apologize for that song. That was me dropping a Sharpie marker <laughs> like I'm a fiddler. Um, so yeah, I I think, I don't know if series is in the cards for me. I don't know if I have a long enough attention span to sustain a series. I think you have to be really devoted um, to do that um, and organized in ways that I've already revealed myself to not be. But maybe. Well, so, but George R. R. Martin is proving otherwise, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, but he also has not finished his series. So I'm not sure, like, he's obviously wildly successful, but I'm not also sure that he's, like, a beacon for proving that that is a sustainable style for writing a series. But no shade to him. Appreciation. I, I haven't read his books. My husband, my husband also is a completely different uh, reader than I am. Like, I'm a very... Uh, probably surprising no one who's read my books like pretty like favor contemporary stories um realistic stories whereas my husband I don't think would have read anything contemporary maybe my books <laughs> uh would be the exception a huge fantasy reader so um and he's very frustrated that that book hasn't come out and I hear about it a lot so I am up on knowing that <laughs> Yeah, has not finished the series. <laughs> That's bugging me too. So I hope uh, I hope Mr. Martin, if you're listening, which I assume, I'm assuming you tune in every week. Yes. Uh, please take this as the spirit of encouragement with which it was meant. Keep going. We we all want to read it. Yes. Um, so want to talk a little bit about reading, and then let's talk about your process through the Shape of Thunder, maybe. Um, but as far as a reader goes. Do a lot of focus on write, 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 because obviously if you don't write, you don't have anything to to come on the show and talk about. But how much reading is so crucial? How much reading do you do on on average? How many books would you say you read per month? And what are your reading habits? Yeah, so I'm definitely a reader before I'm a writer. And I think a lot of us would say this, right, that our writing was born out of our love of reading or at least born out of our love of story. And I definitely learned how to write through reading. And would figure out, try to, you know, unpuzzle, like, why did that move me in the way it did? Why did that, those words arranged like that, have that effect on my heart and looking at these books? Um, for my own reading habits, how much I read, you know, I probably read maybe five books a month, but I also read to my kids. And so I read a lot of books with them. I read aloud to them and they're entering the early chapter book. Um, phase, which has been lovely to get to enjoy stories that way. And I think that's also influencing my writing to remember that storytelling was originally an oral form. 
And I think sometimes I forget that in my own writing and how wonderful it is to share, you know, the read aloud, um, which is obviously a big thing in middle grade culture. I hear about this all the time from teachers and I'm always so delighted when uh, a book of mine is, is used as a read aloud for a classroom because I think it's a wonderful way to all share um, in a story. Um, but yeah, so I think that would be, you know, my reading habits. I'm a very, very active library user. Um, love the library and always give myself room when I go to the library to pick an unexpected book, just one that on the shelf, something about it calls to me. Cause I think it's also, I, I think the, the more, and I don't know if you found this, you get into publishing, the more curated my reading feels. It's like, I know about all these books and I know about them because I live in this specific world and have these specific interests. And so these are the ones that I'm really interested in reading. And I'll always leave room, like I said, to just randomly select a book because I think that was more my pattern of reading when I was a kid. And I think that's why I was surprised sometimes by what I responded to. I think I'm trying to to push myself more out of my comfort zone with reading um, in addition, you know, to maybe trying my hand at new kinds of writing. But I um, am heavily in the balance of fiction that's somewhere where I'm like I think I'm a recovering art history major who read lots and lots of nonfiction uh with the history and the art history uh degree um and I've just recently been able to read nonfiction like for interest and enjoyment outside of you know I read I read a lot of nonfiction to research my books, but that I feel like is is different than just like picking up a collection of essays or picking up a biography or something like that. So you've got you've got your research books you've got to read. You've got books you're reading with the kids, and then and is it in the evening before bed? There you are uh, with a with a good long book for as long as you can make. I mean, five yeah. books got to be you got to yeah, be making up. Like, a really fast reader. Well, I read in the playroom when my kids play, and I read, like, on the deck while I make them play independently in the yard. So I read a lot while momming, um, which is, like, a haphazard kind of reading experience, right, because you're pulled in and out of it. But I almost always have a book, and I hear from parents a lot that ask me, you know, and I'm sure you get asked this question, too, about, like, how do I raise a reader? And the number one thing I think is that you model that for them like that's a gift my parents gave me my mom was always reading she never went anywhere without a book and my soccer practice I looked over she's reading a book you know when we would go somewhere she'd have a book to read while waiting for if we're waiting for a table to get called at the restaurant you know that was something that I grew up seeing both of my parents uh, read and read for pleasure uh, and that's something that's really important to me to like model for my own kids. So I definitely get my best reading done, like you said, in the evening. But I try to read during the day, too, so that they see that that that's a big part of my life. Um, and that I, yeah, always, I always have a book. So I guess I've turned into my mother. That's another revealing thing about this podcast. Oh, no. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've never met your mother, but that sounds like a lovely quality. I assume she has others. <laughs> if you're going to pick up a habit from your parents, my God, uh, heavy reading. That sounds like just top. 
so okay um I want to I want to circle more around your writing process, but let's do that while talking about your new book that is launching tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and as promised, I will not uh, do a summary of your of your biography or your book. So if you would tell esteemed audience what they need to know about the Shape of Thunder that they're ordering right now as we speak. Perfect. Well, thank you in advance for ordering it as we speak. Um, so the Shape of Thunder uh, is the story of two girls, uh, Cora Hamad and Quinn McCauley. And Cora and Quinn have been best friends their entire life. They live next door to one another. Uh, but the book begins at the start of their seventh grade year. And Cora and Quinn haven't spoken to one another in almost a year at this point when uh, the book starts. And in the first chapter, uh, Cora receives kind of a mysterious box from Quinn on her doorstep. And this box is filled with time travel articles. And you see Cora and Quinn's friendship has become fractured because of this tragedy that happened in their small Ohio town. A school shooting happened at the high school of their town. And Cora has been existing in her separate world of grief, mourning uh, the loss of her older sister, Mabel. And Quinn has been grappling uh, with the guilt over uh, her brother's violent actions. Uh, but Quinn has given Cora this box of research about time travel because Quinn has become convinced that it is possible to find a wormhole in the fabric of the universe, travel back in time, and stop her brother and fix everything uh, that happened. And at first, Cora is furious. She thinks this is really insulting and ridiculous of Quinn. Um, but Cora, as Quinn knows, has always been interested in time travel and is kind of the brainier uh, friend, whereas Quinn is the more like imaginative, dreamy friend. So at first, you know, Cora wants to write this off as something that's like really fanciful of Quinn's. Um, but as she reads through the article, she realizes that this could be real, that this is actual science. And so the girls uh, begin uh, to work together to try to find um, a wormhole and they target their search um, in the forest. And so the book is about uh, their quest uh, to time travel and fix everything, but it's also um, a book about the magic of friendship and it's a book about grief and what it means uh, to lose someone that you love. And most of all, it's a book about um, kind of the trauma of gun violence and what it's like to grow up as a kid today in America um, with this kind of present uh, threat of violence. So, um, yeah, I don't really have a good polished pitch. So all of you got to hear kind of the more rambly organic uh, pitch of it, but I prefer that for this book because this is kind of my messy book. It's sort of my big questions um, book that combines a lot of things. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is the book in lots of ways um, is sort of my homage to The Bridge to Terabitha, which is a book that I was like my very favorite book when I was a kid um, because it was a book that was honest with me about how hard life can be. And I wanted to write a book that was going to be really honest with young people and challenging. And I hope that in that way it is empowering and makes them feel like they have the ability, you know, to, to fix our world, to change our world. Because I really think our young people are the ones who are going to help us uh, find a better way forward. So that, I guess, is kind of 
what this book is about. Um, and I'm sure if Ro eventually sees this, she will want me to get better at having a more succinct pitch. But that is the pitch for now. Oh, that sounds perfect. And I think, I think we're going to make it a little bit ramblier, uh, hopefully, before we're done. <laughs> <laughs> some, some, some rambly questions uh, about it. Um, uh, starting with, um, well, I, I love this idea that maybe that this this book, this subject might be too mature for children. Like, no, we don't want to upset or traumatize you. Now, please put your things away so we can prepare for this active sco- shooter drill uh, throughout your, your school day. Uh, and keep your mask on so you don't get the deadly virus that could kill you and everyone you love. But otherwise, focus on childhood innocence. <laughs> Aside from that. So a book like this, uh, you typically you start with character. Here you've got two characters. Um, so what comes to you first? Because just hearing you describe it and, 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 and reading the, the um, it seems because of where we're, we're catching up to the characters, it seems almost situational driven. But I know that that must not be. because It is a tremendous situation that kind of overshadows everything there, their relationship uh, to each other and, and the way that's been affected uh, by, by, by the actions of this brother. Um where do you start? Do you, do you hear one character, both both characters? How, where does your idea come from and, and how does it present itself? Yeah, so actually for this book, the first like idea that I was like, wow, I want to write a book about, you know, gun violence for a younger audience came from um, realizing that soon my oldest daughter was going to go to school and that she was going to participate in active shooter drills and not knowing how I would talk to her about it and then being frustrated by the rhetoric you're talking about which is we act as if our kids live in a silo and somehow they don't know that these things are going on or that our young people also aren't affected when these tragedies happen in their communities and so I was thinking on that and really quickly Cora's character came to me as a girl who had lost her sibling in a school shooting and I thought it was going to be just a straight up grief book about what it means to lose your sister and uh to go through that and all of a sudden Quinn came and at first Quinn didn't have a viewpoint but she was just Cora's best friend and Cora was estranged from her and then I was like oh my goodness this is why they're estranged because I was thinking a lot about the ways these acts of violence fracture communities long after the cameras have left, right? That these oftentimes um, are, you know, families that lived close to one another who are going through loss and these different sides of the loss, right? And so that became, uh, that kind of stuck in my brain. And then I realized, wow, what I really want to do is I want this to be a, uh, dual POV book. I want to uh, go through both girls' experiences um, and in that maybe form a fuller picture of what kind of questions I'm trying to ask. But Cora definitely um, was my first character and her loss of her sister was like the clearest thing to me that first, um, I guess, came to me um but the rest kind of filled in and you know I think that at the time I separately was really interested like we talked a little bit about the concept of time travel and so it kind of serendipitously collided right I was thinking about 
the responsibility our young people feel to fix this problem that should not be theirs to fix. And I think that this idea of wanting to time travel to fix it just came to me because it was born out of that wondering of like, why, why are we hoisting all this responsibility onto our young people with, like you're saying, the lockdown drills? Like they feel this need that suddenly it's their job to barricade themselves and their classmates. You know, this, this is our, what we've come up with as the solution to this problem and how kind of ineffectual that seems to me. Um, And so, you know, I think, all of those things kind of collided to create this sort of messy and complicated narrative. But Cora was first, and then I figured out her relationship with Quinn, and then Quinn had the plot, which is, I guess, what you're always looking for. So Quinn, who gave me the plot? So when you when you start, do you sit down or do you write something? somewhat resembling the actual first chapter of the book or do you write just a kind of a character diagram what goes on the page first yeah so for this book i wrote some sample chapters and sent them to my agent and was like do you think this is a book that alessandra would want to work with me on who is my editor and then we had a phone call where I pretended that I kind of knew where the book was going and she pretended like she believed me that I knew where the book was going. And then it's once I knew that it would be my next book, um, then I do, I just start writing and I fully rewrite all of my books during revision because I don't know where the book's going. I write to discover where the book's going. And so I end up writing lots of things that end up being unusable once I've really discovered the book. But my first draft is all about finding my characters' voices. And then by the second draft, I'm thinking more about having it have a structure (laughs) or having it seem like it fits. And then by the third draft, I'm trying to synthesize what I've learned about the structure and their voices to come up with what's kind of like my first draft that I would send uh, off to my editor to them work with her on. And then my understanding from her, though, is that I still do a lot more rewriting than lots of other authors she works with. And I think that's because I have such like a kind of a messy process that my book, she's always trying to tease out for me what what do you want this book to be like what what is this book supposed to be and i think it was sort of figuring out that at its heart it was a friendship story um not a grief story and i thought originally that it was going to be you know more of kind of a straight up grief story um but in lots of ways it's more of a friendship adventure story uh, which surprised me and i kind of had to figure that out like i said through all those kind of exploratory drafts so how long does your first draft take you to write? Since it sounds like you're, uh, you're uh, we'll start with that question, then I'll come back with more. <laughs> yeah, you know, anywhere between three to six months is usually what a first draft takes me, like a really messy one. And then probably another three months for that second go at it. So, yeah, I'm in that like 
six to nine month timeline usually of between talking to my editor and being like, this is the book that I'm going to do to a draft of that book arriving to her. And have you got uh, critique partners or anybody else weighing in on the book before it gets to your editor? No, I don't. I have lots of friends who use that method. Uh, I will sometimes send snippets of a book to friends, trusted readers, and oftentimes it's different people every time and say, hey, can you just like look at the screen and tell me like, am I nuts? Like, or is this like something where you would want to read on? Like, what do you think about their voice? But I'm kind of like in a really protective cocoon while I draft. I don't really show the book to lots of other people until I've gone through lots of revisions with my editor and it's pretty close to being done. And then I send it out to other people because I think I want to get opinions outside of like the tunnel that my editor and I live in, right? And that can be good because somebody can see something that we may have missed because we've seen the book through all of the different drafts. So we know things that are no longer in the book, um, but it's a good way to test, like, do you need to know that in order to follow this or whatever it might be? But I don't show the book early to other people. Um, when I was trying to get published, I did have critique partners that I would use um, before getting an agent. And then I think it's just like, I don't know, I think it, life becomes really busy, right? And you kind of get on your a time schedule and it becomes difficult to, um, for me at least, like when I had small children to like be in a critique group because like it, you have to like have a certain amount of time to be doing that, right? And uh, I think I also got better at like trusting my gut, like that I'm, a pretty sharp critic of my own work now in a way that I didn't used to be. Um, but I'm hoping now that my kids are getting a little bit older to refine readers and critique because I think it's really, really, really helpful. I just have been kind of winging it solo for a little bit because of like my super erratic personal life schedule these past couple of years. Well, in all fairness, it is working out. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's it's going well. <laughs> so, okay. Um, if you are revising all the way up until the, the very end, you're still sending your editor uh, new, new, new sections, new passages. When you get to the point where, the, okay, let's just stop, Jasmine, we're going to make this a book now. Um, do you feel satisfied that yes, I gave that my all, or do you, are you left feeling like no, I could do one more thing? Just, just let me go. I always have to feel like I gave it my all, or we would have put the book into copy editing. I think my editor and I both always feel that way, and like we've delayed books because I felt like I need more time with this. this isn't as good as I want it to be. But I also always have that panic moment afterwards of going through everything. And of course, past pages make me feel so nauseous as I go through it because I feel so anxious to say, like, is this really done? Because also nothing ever feels done, right? So I think that those are two separate questions. Like, I always have to feel like I did this book the very best way I could for the writer that I am right now, right? But let's say like this book, right? I'm a very different writer now. I've been writing longer. 
if I were to go through this now, I would probably write parts of it differently. And that's not to say, though, that Jasmine back in 2014, when this went to copy editing, didn't give it her all because I most certainly did. I did the best for the book that I could do. Um, and that's what I'm always hoping because that's the only way I can like sleep at night as if I feel like I did the very, very best job I personally could do at this moment. Uh, but of course, the second guess thing is I've been lucky enough for other words for home to do a lot of school visits and a lot of them have a read aloud component that I'm asked to read from the book. And I will definitely have moments where I read aloud from the book and will say, I would change that word. Why didn't I catch that? I would change that. I would, I would, I, or I would change that line break. So I think you'll always see those things, right? Especially once you've had enough distance from it. But I think the answer is like, at that moment, you have to feel like I couldn't possibly read it another time. I've given it every ounce that I could give it. And that's when I think I let it go. Cause you have to, we, we would never let anything go, right? If you're gonna wait the 30 years to see the line break you would change that I see now, I, you know, so that's a little bit of the process that I find maddening. And I don't know if you find that. I also find it so hard that like right now, I'm gearing up to be talking about this book a lot and I'm very excited to be doing that. But also my head and heart are completely invested now in, in the new book of what I'm working on right now. I think that's the interesting thing about the publishing cycle, right? We live um, in different kind of places um, with depending on what we're working on and what is actually hitting the shelf so that we're able to talk about it at that moment. How long ago was it that you turned in the final uh, draft for copy edits to now the book birthday launch eve? Uh, so the Sheep of Thunder went to copy edits in July or August? July, July. And I did the copy edits for it in August, September. Um, and then I did past pages in December. Now, here we are, it's uh, May 10th, so five months later, and you've got to put yourself back in the headspace of where you were at, and I'm, I'm assuming you, you still recognize your baby, you love this book, uh, but I, I completely uh, empathize with um, wanting to tell everyone probably about your new book, which even if I were to ask you, you probably would have to say I can make no comment at this time. No, actually it's been announced, so I can like say oh, a little bit about what it is. Um, it is called Resilience and it is the story. It is a book that is told from the perspective of a Mars rover whose name is Resilience, uh, though in the book they are affectionately referred to as Res. Uh, and it's all about their journey um, from their creation in uh, NASA's JPL lab uh, all the way to Mars. And so it's a book about exploration and curiosity and uh Rez's sort of pondering of what makes a human a human and what makes a rover a rover. So um, I'm really excited about it. I also, uh, it is not in verse, but it is in a really like sparse scaled back writing style, uh, which is really fun to kind of return to that after Shape of Thunder is a much more meaty uh, prose book. So it's fun to kind of play with both types of styles. 
I saw that you uh, had managed to avoid the trap of becoming just a prose writer after a Newbery honor uh, for your, your, your prose book. Was there a moment of pressure after that where, hey, this really worked out for you? Uh, you should do this from, from now on, or was it always just do what you want and uh, you come back to the style when you like? You know, I was lucky enough that I'd sold the Sheep of Thunder uh, even before Other Words for Home came out. So I had no idea that Other Words for Home was going to have the reception that it had. I think that's kind of the biggest blessing any writer could have. I think that if I was starting to write a book after January of 2020, when I'd gotten that phone call, if that's when I sat down to write my next book, I would have had a lot more paralysis. But I got to kind of write The Shape of Thunder and kind of a... You know, I, I panicked a lot around, like, April of 2020 when we, like, it was getting closer to being done. And being like, this is the book I'm choosing to follow up this book with. Like, why? Like, should I have done another verse novel? Like, should I be doing a book that is this heavy and challenging after this book? Like, what am I doing? But I'd already made, you know, that was a choice that I'd made without knowing I would have an audience that was going to likely a lot of readers associate the book with other words for home. Um, but you have to let that go, right? And I feel, like I said, it mostly I feel lucky that I didn't, that I didn't know that. And I definitely don't, I talk about this a lot with my publishing team that I really do not want to ever be like branded as a certain type of writer. I feel like I have lots of different ideas and lots of different styles that I want to try. And so I think that it would have not been great for me to do another verse novel right after Other Words Were Home, but I want to do other verse novels. I love verse novels. I'll return to verse novels, but I want to not like have my name only be associated with verse novels. But luckily that was never an issue because like I said, I sold the Shiva Thunder way before Other Words for Home even came out. And wait, like, you, I had no idea. I don't think anybody really ever has any idea that something like that is going to happen. Um, but I think that that it was, is freeing in some ways, that this is not like a calculated follow-up to the book. In lots of ways, it's anything but. Like, I think if you ask someone, oh, what should you follow, like, a a pretty gentle and beloved Newberry Honor book with. Oh, a really challenging, messy, brainy story about time travel and gun violence. I don't think necessarily like that's what like a marketing expert would tell you to do, but I think that um, that's where my brain took me. And I think that that's what we always have to do. We have to follow our brain and our heart and write the story that comes to us at the time, not necessarily the story that uh, makes the most sense. And now that I'm saying this, I don't even know what the, the, that story that makes sense to follow other words for home is. You know, that's what I mean. I think that if I had come at that from that place, I'd be in a real state of paralysis because what what does that even, what does that mean? What does that look like? Whereas here I can be like, this is this book and it is the way that it was always supposed to be and nothing about it was altered to adjust to any of those expectations because I didn't know they would be there, you know? It's a very strong argument for always always be writing. Just go ahead and write your next book. Don't worry about what the current one's doing. 
So that's, that's a double-edged sword. If it hadn't done well, then you'd be like, oh my gosh, that book didn't do well, and neither will anything else that I write. So we would have been par- paralyzed either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why I think it is. Like, it's so important to always be in love with the next thing, as we talked about, uh, that I feel like I am. Like, I think it's so important to always and I also think like that's the best thing for your creative spirit which is the thing I'm the most interested in but I also think it's the best thing for a career because nothing sells your backlist books like your frontlist books so the best thing if you're worried about you know if I had been in May of 2019 stressing about other words for home, the best thing I still could have done for it was to write the next book because that's going to get you back out talking about books, back out getting your name out there, which is what sells your previous books. So I think that, um, but I'm more concerned, like I said, with the creative, your creative spirit. And I think that that's the way to stay in it for the long haul. Because I think publishing is an industry that has lots of really high highs and also lots of really low lows. And I think that you have to make it about the writing um, and kind of divorce the writing from publishing as much as you can. And I try to do that. And I try to just like be in love with writing and being a writer and then put on my publishing hat when I have to about it, but not necessarily have that viewpoint bleed as little as possible into my writing as I can. I wanted to make sure before we start thinking about wrapping this up that we did talk just a little bit about gun violence uh, and and school shootings. Um, So I've got uh, some experience. We had a a shooting in our district and I, you know, I got the alert on my phone uh, that your child is at is in a district where this is happening, uh, and then I because I was a substitute teacher, I uh, had to do the um, active shooter drills, which is just horrifying. And I was an adult when I did it. I can't imagine how traumatizing that must be uh, when you're a child. Um, and then I had to um, I happened to be with a class that had been in the room where the shooting happened, uh, had several students during an active uh, shooter drill which is just an experience and, and a half. And I've had, this is this, the sad commentary about where we're at, I think, that I've had since I was a teenager, a book about a school shooting that I've worked on, on and off, and I'm probably never going to publish. And I now I wanted to, I, I, I've changed as an artist, but two, every time I would go back to it, it would be, do I want to pick up this heaviest of all topics? Do I want to carry this around and have it living in my head 24-7 until I've got a book that, that, that I feel is good. And also I said, no, I, I don't want to live there. How do you approach a subject this dark and do the work to, because you're not just representing our two main characters. We're, we're, we're meeting their families. We're learning what their reactions to this tragedy are. We're meeting the community, the school, people, the school. How do you research something like that to do it authentically? And how do you do it in such a way that you can uh, that you don't, you know, that you look uh, into an abyss without keeping the abyss looking back into you, that you don't take that that darkness and carry that around with you everywhere you go? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I think that in terms of research, I just read a lot of articles um, and books about communities that have gone through these tragedies. And I also talked, you know, I was doing school visits for Other Words for Home, uh, while I was drafting the shoot was under and I talked to kids and all of our kids 
by and large, have lots of opinions about this. And it's not something they're hesitant to talk to. It's something that us grown-ups are really uncomfortable. But for them, they're living this trauma. So yeah, they are super traumatized by these active shooter drills. But they also don't have this like EBGB, oh, we can't talk about that. If we talk about that, somehow it like makes it worse idea, which is also, you know, what I see a lot around like the mental health conversation with grownups versus kids. There's like lots of parallels to me. And so I think what kept me going was really, I believe in books as conversation starters. I think they can help crack open these things that are really difficult to talk about, right? Like I think sometimes if you're grieving, if you've lost someone, a story about loss can help crack that open in you and kind of give you this emotional vocabulary to talk about what's going on with you. And I think books broker difficult conversations. And I felt galvanized by wanting our young people who seemed so hungry for the chance to be able to talk about this issue, to have a book that would hold space for that conversation for them. And I think that that kept it from feeling relentlessly dark because I don't view the book as hard as it is, as tragic as what these characters have gone through and are going through as a dark book. It's actually a book that I think is filled with a lot of hope and it's filled with a lot of hope. And I don't think this is really a spoiler because in lots of ways, the book is saying that young people are magic. And I think have the ability that they're going to be the ones that are going to change this because they've had to live this, you know? And I think that I just want to provide a platform for them um, to be able to talk about it and to be able to talk about it with the grownups in their lives because I could see, like, there's a sheepishness, right, around the issue and how, and how they have been made to feel about it. So I don't know, but it's hard. It was a, it was a devastating book tour. It was, it was relentlessly difficult book to work on. And I really reached my breaking point when I was in the midst of really the heaviest part of revisions in March 2020. So the world is shutting down. The state of the world is extremely hard. And what is my writing project? What is my escape project? Oh, I'm going to go work on my book about gun violence. So that was really hard. And that's why I don't think it's any surprised that my next book is much lighter in tone, you know, and, and is different because I think you have to give yourself some space sometimes. But I also, I don't know, I, I come from a tradition of viewing, seeing writing as a form, like I said, of, of conversation starting. And a lot of the books that have made the biggest difference to me are not books that necessarily have a strong message, but are books that ask really big questions about our world. And that's like what I was really aiming to do is just say, like, does anyone else think about these things? What do you think about these things? Um, and provide a forum for young people to do that. But definitely was never about trying to traumatize anyone or, or make anyone uh, upset, but more to just, like I said, I think that when I was a young person, I thought of challenging books as empowering books. Like when I read a book that was about something difficult or uneasy, I felt like that book saw me 
and respected me as a reader and respected that I lived in the world and, and was had a growing awareness of it. And that's what I think like middle grade is such an amazing space to write for kids because our kids are coming into this awareness of the world, but it's coupled with that like huge heart and that massive imagination. And to me, I'm hoping the book is like an ode to that intersection of increased awareness of the world with tremendous imagination and big hearts. And, and I think that, that that piece of it, that imagination piece, in lots of ways the book is a celebration of imagination, um, is what helped me to not feel like so sucked into the abyss. But it, it's hard. It's not, it's, not, it's not an easy book to write. Well, here's an unbelievably unfair, unreasonable question. Um, because the the whole world, uh, but, but let's be honest, the United States uh, wants to wants to hopefully wants to fix this problem. A lot of us do. Uh, maybe certain senators who are whose campaigns are funded by the NRA don't. Todd Young of Indiana. Oh, I remember your thoughts and prayers, Todd Young. I remember. <laughs> anyway, uh, but I give you the magic wand. You you've given this a, a great deal of consideration. You could do something that would you know, not end school shootings, but maybe curtail them. What's the first thing you'd do? Um, I would have increased restrictions around gun storage, I think is a huge issue to have like laws and regulation around that and all the background checks and loopholes that we hear about that should be the most simple, like that should be table stakes. Like I have a lot more, I think, views. <laughs> uh, on on ways to fix it, but I would start with saying I think those common sense measures that I can't believe that we don't pass. And then the last thing I will say though, which um, is not at all to deflect the conversation away from guns, which I think there should be a big conversation about how many guns we have in this country and how easily it is to access them 100% should be a part of the conversation solving it. But I do think that mental health for our young people, when we're talking about school shootings, uh, needs needs to be addressed. I think we have this terrible climate of toxic masculinity that is mixing with um, underserved mental health treatment. And we have kids who are feeling isolated and they have been raised in this culture that the only way to not feel ashamed and humiliated or however they're feeling is to be violent. And I think that that collision um, of things needs to be addressed. We need to start having serious conversations about how we fix our culture of violence. You know, I think a big part of the reason America has such a gun problem is because we have a lot of guns. Obviously that's like the major component, but it's also we, kind of valorize violence in all of our, the way we teach our history, the way we talk about ourselves as a country. And I think we need to have a real conversation about why are we a country that glorifies violence so much and, and why we, what, what, what is causing this uh, problem that it's not uniquely American, but does feel disproportionately like we are a country that's grappling with us. There's something in our cultural um, media stream. And so I, I'm like a really personal, um, it's really personal to me uh, as someone who has mental health issues. So I'm not demonizing anybody with mental health. I never want to make this equation that 
you have mental health um, issues that you are will or are violent. But I do think that um, we are massively underserved as a country uh, when it comes to mental health and especially our young people. And so I think like those would kind of be my baseline um, where I would start the conversation. Uh, having more regulations around guns uh, in a reasonable way, having a conversation about why someone needs a gun and who should own a gun and how they should have to store their gun and then the mental health um, piece. But the book honestly doesn't engage with that at all. It's not about um, solutions. I hope that it will inspire people to want to talk about that, but it's more about creating a dialogue that forces us to talk about that this is the way it is for kids today. You know, it's meeting kind of the um, situation, I guess, where where it is. The solution, not a solution. We all have to live here with things as they are presently. And let's at least talk about that and acknowledge that it's it's not okay that we're living this way. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that the like main point of the book is about that we have to dream bigger, like that we have to use our imaginations and come up with better solutions than we have come up with. Like, again, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but like that's where the idea of like the shape of thunder, which is the title comes from, is this idea of like, it's something we can't really imagine, right? But we have to use our imagination and there's power in that like boldness of believing in something better and in the possibility of a better world. I think so often we've just become complacent right? That we just decided this is just how it is. And okay, we're just going to have our kids do lockdown drills all the time. And we're going to hope it's not our kid's school. And we're going to hope, you know, it, it, and that's just so maddening to me that it's like, that's the best we can come up with in this country that has invented so many things that this paltry solution that's our solution and so I think that's really to me what I'm getting at with the book is saying like we can do better we need to do better for our young people can't we do better can't we imagine something better and, and kind of an ode to the fact that I really think it's our young people who can imagine something better because I think sometimes we as grown-ups become complacent and have an inability to see kind of past um what we've already tried well, fortunately, you and I are having this conversation in 2021 and not 2020. Last year, I would have said, nope, it's all hopeless. There will never be anything good that could ever happen again. But this year, by God, I'm feeling pretty good. We were just talking before the show. Uh, I got my second dose of the vaccine. You were, you're vaccinated. There is reason to be optimistic. There could possibly yet be a brighter tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really think so. I think it's a book. It's full of a lot of optimism um because i think we have to be i think especially when you write for young people you have to have hope you have to have optimism um because that's what is going to move things forward right is believing in in a better solution and believing in a better possibility sudden subject change uh jasmine Rorka, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost I have not seen a flying saucer, but I do believe I've seen a ghost. When I was little, I was convinced there was a ghost who used to come to visit me in my room. And I have very strong childhood memories of this ghostly figure in my room. But my parents would tell you that's a nightmare. 
that I had repeatedly as a kid. Um, but no, I've suddenly never seen a flying saucer, though. I'm always looking for one. I would love that. I uh, am fascinated by all this new info coming out about UFOs that our government's admitting they there are things that the U.S. Air Force has no idea what they are. Um, and I don't know if you saw, I think it was some, I forget what country it was, but like a top retired uh, government official was like talking about how like, yes, there's definitely UFOs and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, so I'm so here for that. Like I would love to see a UFO, but I've never seen, huh? I've yet to see one, but my uh, youngest daughter is super into space and really wants a telescope. So maybe I'll have a better vehicle soon to look for one. That would be perfect. Although I think uh, I, I used to ask the second part of that question was, have you seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? I've dropped that second part because believe in them, don't believe in them. It's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's, also, don't believe in them. Who is on this podcast is saying that? No. No. <laughs> uh, hopefully we're, we'll all get to see them uh, before too terribly long. Uh, and they'll have uh, all kinds of solutions, hopefully, that we can immediately implement. I hope so, too. That sounds great. Or they'll take us over and it'll be terrible. Either way, <laughs> one or the other. Uh, and I also, while we're while we're here, I wanted to talk a little bit about astrology because uh, you've got it proclaimed on your website that you are a, a big believer in astrology or a big fan. How would you word it? Yeah, I'm really into it and interested in it. I have friends who are much bigger experts than I am, but yeah, I'm really into like the zodiac and knowing like what your you know, your sun sign is, and your moon sign is, and your rising sign is, and all those things, and was very interested in what signs my kids would be, and all those things, and uh, my brother, who is super not into astrology, will always tell me that the zodiac is junk, and I tell him that sounds exactly like what an Aries would say, so he is uh, living up to his sign uh yeah i just think it's really a fun kind of way to think about yourself or other people in your life i, I just i find it fun i used to be a bit dismissive that i uh, had a girlfriend in college who was extremely into it and got me into it a bit and i learned that i'm uh was born on the cusp of leo and virgo like so i'll have a frequent uh, flights of uh, I must be the greatest person that ever lived, followed immediately by I must work harder, I'm not nearly good enough. I, <laughs> I had to go. And until I heard that, like, oh, that makes sense. That's that's the first thing I've heard that, yes, okay, that that perfectly encapsulates these two disparate uh, parts of my personality. Ah, I've got you. Are you able to use charting? And um, do you do astrological charts for your characters? You know, I do think about what their main sign would be a lot of times, but I don't go anything further than that. Though I should now that you're saying that, that gave me a good idea to really like uh, do really fun way. But I do always know, like, even if it's not in the book, if they're like what sign they are, like Cora is a very classic Virgo. So it's really funny that you brought that up. Um, but yeah, so I, I do, I think, I think about what their, their sign is not so much um like in the weeds of what their whole star chart looks like i don't know if that would be useful or if that would just be one of those activities that feels like writing but isn't i mean it sounds fun either way though so i'll probably be i don't know if like you a, a rover has a, has a star sign that's an interesting uh question uh 
Well, then it would also be a question of as uh, as the rover approaches different planets, how those impact him. Exactly. Now, you know, you're in a new house, I assume, as you <laughs> pass the actual planet. <laughs> uh, really upset today. What is going on? Oh, I'm too close to Venus. That makes sense. We'll get closer to Mars. I'll be fine. Um, and do you use that as a... I mean, are you to the point where you you think you can maybe half predict your future? You know that this is going to be a better day to write or publish than, than another? Not quite there? No, no, not at all. You know, actually, I will do, I like like to use tarot cards too, but I always say that it's not about predicting the future for me. It's about understanding my present moment better. And that's like how I use astrology too, to be like, am I reacting to the situation in this way because... Um, I'm a Taurus or like when I pull certain cards being like, what is that telling me about how I'm feeling about what's going on right now? Because I definitely like don't think of myself as like a psychic or like a diviner of future information. But more, I feel like all of that stuff, like my relationship with all of that kind of stuff is more about like better, like kind of like a therapy psychology use of it, of like better understanding my current uh, moment. And I'm um, watching our time. I'm, I'm aware it's, it's gone. <laughs> what happened to it? It all it all went away. But I did want to ask because you said elsewhere that stories help you make sense of the world. Yes. How so? Well, you know, we talked about a lot with the shape of thunder. I think that I use stories oftentimes as a vehicle to process questions I have about the world. So for shape of thunder, this question of you know, what does it mean to be a young person and grow up in a world with this constant threat of violence? What does it mean for our country that this is the solution that we have come up with and thrust this responsibility onto our kids? Uh, what would it be like to be a kid who's gone through this tragedy and would you feel responsibility to fix it? And why would you want to fix it? And how would you want to fix it? And like all, all of my books are born out of this wondering, these questions. I mean, other words for home, I can do the same thing of, why are so many people afraid of these kids fleeing from a war zone? Why does the U.S. have such intense Islamophobia? Where is that coming from? What are the misunderstandings? And and grappling with all of these questions that I, I have in my own life, and I, I use story as a vehicle um, to kind of wonder about the world and ask those questions. And like I said, I don't think my books ever answer the questions. I think that's why I probably had an unsatisfactory answer to your question about how I would fix the problem. Because the answer is like, I don't know how I would fix the problem. I don't have all the answers at all, but I believe that somebody out there does. And I feel like the best thing that I can do is try to further the conversation to get those people who do have the solutions uh, talking about it and thinking about it and, and pushing the conversation forward to say, we need to change. Like that's what I know is that we need to change. I don't know exactly how or what that change is going to look like, but I know that it has to happen. And so I think that's how all of my books are. Um, if I knew the answers to things, I don't necessarily think I'd be a novelist. You know, I don't think I'd be a storyteller. Um, I might just like take out billboards and put the message or the answer on. But it's more for me, writing is a process of searching and asking and saying, hey, do you wonder about this too? Have you ever thought about this too? I feel like I'm all, I fill my books with questions in the hope that by the time the reader puts down the book, they also have questions. And I think that's what 
lends well to discussion. I think for me, the most satisfying books to discuss are not the books that kind of spoon feed you answers, but the books that really challenge you and kind of invite you in uh, to wonder about things yourself and ask questions yourself. And so um, that's kind of what I mean when I say I use stories uh, to make sense to make sense of the world. I use stories to kind of explore the questions that I have about the world. I think that is the perfect note for us to end on. Uh, Jasper Morgan, thank you so much for making the the time and for being just a phenomenal guest. Uh, where can esteemed audience find you online, find more information, follow you on social media, all that good stuff? Yeah, so esteemed audience, hello. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, it's very easy. It's at Jasmine Warga. Um, and on Instagram, at Jasmine Warga Books um, is my handle. And you can find me at my online home, um, jasminemorga.com. And on my website, jasminemorga.com, there is information about how you can contact me and write to me if you would like to send me an email or something like that or write to me in the old-fashioned sense. Um, so all of that information is on my website. And then the Twitter, the Twitter. Myself. Kids, I'm really cool. Don't worry. I'm very <laughs> useful. You can find me on the Twitter um, and also on Instagram. Uh, and as always, esteemed audience, head to middlegradeninja.com for all the most wonderful information about publishing, writing, uh, things that will change your life. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Pay cash money for your copy of All Together Now, a zombie story. It's worth it, I promise. And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.